today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron at his last stop of Three Nation tour in Europe. Mueller report finds no evidence that Trump campaign colluded with Russia. Hundreds of thousands marched in London this weekend to demand new Brexit referendum. China to reduce government intervention in industrial sector. ISIS has lost its final stronghold in Syria. The Syrian Democratic Forces has announced. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. Chinese President Xi Jinping stressed the importance of maintaining Chinese-French relations as both countries continue to develop and make a global impact. Xi made the remarks while meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron in the southern French city of Nice. This is the last stop of Xi's three-nation tour in Europe. Before meeting with Macron, Xi paid a visit to Monaco, where he met Prince Albert II for bilateral talks on economic and environmental cooperation. That came after his trip to Italy, whose government became, became the first G7 state to sign up to the Belt and Road Initiative. For more on President Xi's European tour, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Yiwei, Romanet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Good evening, Dr. Wang. Hello. So, Dr. Wang, we know this year marks the 55th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and France. So, first of all, what do you make of the importance of China-France ties? Okay, firstly, the France in the West, most independent uh, from the United States, is in the system and clearly for the political uh, system. The French president is the most powerful. And... Current President Macron is very young, dynamic. So after uh, Brexit, uh, Trump's uh, Macron first, and uh, Moko now uh, lose the traditional influence. So I think China will invest more on the relations with the uh, French President Macron. And uh, the President Macron also very need China's support in the climate change uh, and uh, peace forum, all kind of this. So China and France work together to push forward uh, multilateralism, global governance. Of course, uh, France is a leading power in the European Union. So this relationship also contribute to the China-EU uh, cooperation. Mm-hmm. And also in President Xi's signed article published in French newspaper, he puts forward four key principles, which are independence, openness and win-win, inclusiveness and mutual learning. What's your biggest takeaway from this? Well, I think it's very important and pendant that uh, the European Union, the France, should take an independent approach to uh, China. Even the United States put China as the uh, strategic rivalry. The European Union identified China both partner and uh, com- competitor. Uh, the partner for uh, uh, negotiation, partner uh, for uh, cooperation. At the same time, of course, they are competitor for the European Union as uh, the industry policy made in China 20, uh, 2025, they identify the, uh, the China as a systematically rivalry. This makes the Chinese very confused about that. And uh, I think this meeting also is a good opportunity 
for the European leaders to clarify the uh, Europeans' new identity to, 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 towards China. So China, in the eyes of the Euro- Europeans, is not just a developing country. The uh, more complex, and the European Union, in the eyes of the China, is also very complex, not just a normative power. The European Union now wants to have a more realistic approach, strategic thinking, and even geopolitical thinking about China. So that's the new uh, relations is uh, even shaping. Since you mentioned about Europe's uh, new China policy, uh, we know that speaking before Xi Jinping's arrival, Macron actually lauded the EU's awakening to the challenges posed by China. And he told the EU leaders that cooperation with China must be matched by caution and saying that they have a lot to do together with China in terms of climate action and multilateralism, but they also have to defend their own interests. What's your thought on this? Oh, yes, many complaints that the uh, U.S. and the European uh, Union shares about China's market access substitutes to the state-owned enterprises and uh, uh, national level of the innovation. Uh, but this, I think, that with the Chinese new open reform, we can uh, provide more opportunities for uh, the European and the U.S. companies uh, to discover the new potential, particularly even in the finance and the service, all kind of these uh, high-level market that can win more money. Uh, because the European Union, in recent years, the way complain about the Chinese win-win uh, uh, policy, so-called China win twice. Actually, when the uh, high level of the uh, service sector of the open of the Chinese market, the Europeans and Americans have win uh, more than before. Uh, at the same time, of course, competition is very natural with the uh, uh, you know, digital economy, AI, and uh, uh, but uh, still, China and the US, uh, European Union should work together to push forward the global governance and the economic uh, globalization. That's in both sides. We need each other because the European Union also felt very pressure from the Americans' unilateralism, uh, the neglect of the uh, traditional alliance. And China as well also needs the U- uh, European Union uh, to, uh, I think, to push forward their own uh, open reform agenda and the global governance agenda. So the Belarus Initiative is opportunities for China and Europe to work together to set the uh, norms and the standards, make it more inclusive, balanced, and sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Wang, do you think EU's China policy has more to do with the pressure from the U.S. or uh, with EU's own ambition to build a more defensive European industrial strategy? Well, the European Union now needs a external threat or challenge to integrate the industrial policy. Usually they take the United States. But now the U- Europeans are very astonished. They are not just the bypass by the United States in the AI, digital economy, even by, the, uh, by China. So uh, the Chinese uh, national system, the strong government, substitutes to the uh, state-owned enterprises to make the Europeans very, very uh, difficult to, to follow that kind of a step. Even President Trump of the, of the AI national community wanted a similar uh, approach or system with, with China. But the European Union is not a single country. It's not a sovereign state. And it's difficult to, uh, to coordinate. So, but in the uh, industrial policy, they indeed need to coordinate. Particularly after the merge of Aristotle and uh, Simmons was uh, cancelled by the European Commission. So now, now France and uh, Germany will unite and push forward that agenda 
that took use of the uh, challenge or even threat of, of China. Well, we know that as part of Xi Jinping's tour to Europe this time, Italy has become the first G7 state to sign up to the Belt and Road Initiative. How significant is that? Well, uh, China invests a lot in the Eurozone uh, debt uh, crisis period of the market, which we uh, uh, get, I think, from Portugal to Italy. They all need more investment from AIB and uh, also from the initiative projects, particularly for the infrastructure building, like there are many the four major ports in the Mediterranean Sea. At the same time, Italy also wants to take a leading role to put the European standard in the the Belarus initiative, which I think China are very welcome of that because the Belarus initiative covers so many countries. So we need the Chinese standard, not just the China standard, local standard, European standard, international standard, making it more adapt to the local conditions. So, so I think the participation of the uh, Italy shows that the Belarus initiative is mostly inclusive. It's not just about the different countries, South-South cooperation, it's also about uh, the developed countries. And the third-party market, and also it's a good opportunity for China, Italy, and mm-hmm. China, France as well. But Emmanuel Macron, he also criticized Italy's move to join the Belt and Road Initiative, and he's calling for a concerted European approach to China. So how do we understand the worries and doubts on Italy's decision to join BRI, and also in what ways are the European countries divided on their approaches to China? Well, firstly, the France and the Germany, again, because of the very high tension of the, uni- of the unite of the European Union. Actually, they suffered a lot after Brexit and the populist rising. And now that Italy, there is a populist government, so they have trouble relations. Uh, uh. Okay, secondly, uh, the, the France against the Belgium Initiative because uh, the Belgium Initiative pushed forward the horizontal mutual connectivity uh, system which uh, maybe uh, the, the French very hierarchy uh, colonist system, particularly in Africa, they have fell threat. Uh, France is the second largest uh, maritime power. They also worry about China build so many ports uh, to redispute of the global value chain. And uh, put the France and even European Union cannot set the standard and norms. So that, that that's major reasons for that. But at the same time, the European countries will be very divided uh, because of the different comparative advantages of them. Some of the uh, countries are very rich and very uh, industrialized. Uh, some of them, they are not. Even Italy, the north, uh, is very industrialized. And the south uh, is not that case. So uh, this is a diversity. Uh, we need to cooperate with the single uh, regions and the countries first and then bilaterally put forward with the multilateral corporations. So mm-hmm. step by step, I think the goal of the cooperation with the Belarus Initiative is not so contradicted with France and uh, Germany and the European Union. But we need, but we need, need to do at a, at a uh, first stage and then uh, put it as a model to, uh, to promote in other regions. Oh, you, you mentioned about... One. Yes. Um, you mentioned about the rise of the populist sentiment in Europe. Uh, how do we understand this this growing populist anti-EU sentiment on the continent, and what's behind this trend? Well, the populism rising because of the uh, globalization, 
uh, make the rich and the poor, make the new migrants and the uh, uh, traditional citizens, the, uh, the, the competitions growing. Uh, so that is the reality. So Belarus initiative, I think, contribute to the uh, bridging the gaps between rich and the poor, between the, uh, the new members of the European Union and the older members. So that's the situation. The Europe now is very divided, uh, north and south, east and west, new members and the old members. So this is the globalization. But we need a more mutually connected uh, approach to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Well, on Tuesday, Xi Jinping and Macron will be joined by German Chancellor Angela Merkel and EU Commission Chief Jean-Claude Juncker to explore points of convergence ahead of the EU-China summit in Brussels next month. So what to expect? Well, that's a very, uh, very, very important message that European countries sent, that they were united to deal with China, not to let China to divide the Europe, so-called. But this, of course, is not China approach. At the same time, China also uh, likes this approach because uh, the bilateral uh, cooperation between China and the members of the European Union will contribute to the whole relations with the European Union. They are not contradicted. So we like to work together with a strong, united European Union to push forward the multilateralism and global governance agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, before visiting France, uh, President Xi also paid a visit to Monaco, which is the first visit by a Chinese president to this European country. So what are the highlights there, and what's so special about this country? Okay, firstly, that means Chinese foreign policy. Uh, whether it's a big country or small country, we take it as equal. Okay. Uh, secondly, small is beautiful. Uh, Monaco is very small, but uh, they are very unique as a tourist, and uh, they have the uh, gumbo uh, industry uh, and also uh, the uh, stamps. Also, I think uh, last year, the China European Year of Tourists. So I think these visits also uh, help China to discover more new potential of the as a tourist and the investment. Mm-hmm. In, uh, it's good also for Europe, good for China. Thank you, Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Monnet, Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Coming up, Mueller report finds no evidence that Trump campaign colluded with Russia. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. I am Alka Acharya. I teach at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India. Today has uh, organized its programs and uh, a stress on uh, bringing in a lot of views from all over. It is an extremely good platform for uh, information and analysis, and I wish it all success in the future. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. U.S. President Donald Trump's campaign did not conspire with Russia during the 2016 election, a summary of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report says. However, the summary submitted to Congress by Attorney General William Barr is inconclusive as to whether Trump obstructed justice. Trump has responded, no collusion, no obstruction, complete and total exoneration. But opposition Democrats are demanding full access to the Mueller report. The report is the culmination of the 22-month investigation, which resulted in some of the president's closest former aides prosecuted and in some cases imprisoned, though not in connection with the alleged Russia collusion. 
For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Rick Donham, co-director of the Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University. So, Dr. Donham, we know the investigation has taken almost two years. So, first of all, could you remind us which questions were most essential for special counsel to answer? Well, uh, the special counsel had three questions. I mean, the special counsel, his main duty was to determine the extent to which Russia tried to interfere uh, in and affect the 2016 election. That is what the original charge was. Then it went another direction, which was, uh, did Donald Trump or his campaign conspire with the Russians to affect the outcome of the election? And then the third part was, did the president or anyone in his administration obstruct justice, uh, particularly in the firing of the FBI director, James Comey. Uh, it, it went in various other directions, but those were the three major questions that this report dealt with. Hmm. So based on this summary of this uh, Mueller report, have, have right. we got the clear answers to, to all those questions? No, we have, we have clear answer to one. Uh, Russia uh, deeply... Uh, was involved in interfering in the election. There were many indictments of, of Russians and indictments uh, of Trump campaign people involved in uh, some of the uh, some 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 of the acts of interference. In terms of collusion, uh, there were no indictable offenses there. Meaning that collusion is not a crime, but conspiracy uh, would be a crime. And the special prosecutor decided there was not enough evidence to charge Donald Trump or, or anyone in his family or his campaign with conspiring with Russia. What he said, according to the attorney general, uh, was that the Russians tried to interfere in the election, but that no one in the Trump campaign was knowingly conspiring with them. They were the beneficiaries of the Russian interference, but they were not plotters. And in terms of obstruction of justice, again, our only source now is the attorney general of the United States. Um, and he said there was not enough uh, evidence uh, to bring any charges uh, of obstruction of justice. Uh, mm -hmm. It does not necessarily mean that there wasn't uh, obstruction of justice, but there was not any criminal. Uh, there were not any criminal charges. He left that open. He didn't clear Donald Trump, but he also. I did not charge anyone. Yes, actually, uh, the, the, the attorney general said that uh, they have concluded that the evidence developed during the special counsel's investigation is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. But he also said, while the report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. So what exactly does this mean? Exactly. What that means is, uh, in the United States, you have to have uh, uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to convict anyone. So, and and uh, usually a grand jury says preponderance of the evidence, which means it's more likely than not. But in this case, the special prosecutor, the, the independent counsel, uh, special counsel had the highest level of proof needed, and he did not believe that there was uh, undeniable evidence. He, did, he believed that it would be too difficult to bring a case, uh, you know, wh whether whether that means that uh, that there was no guilt involved, we can all debate. But uh, I mean, it's good news for Donald Trump that he's not going to trial, that his family's not going to trial, and that no one else in his campaign is going to be charged.
<laughs> so what does this mean for Donald Trump's presidency and also for his re-election campaign? Well, I think it's two things. For the presidency, he's out from under a cloud because I, I think that, that his critics in the press have been so vocal about conspiracy, conspiracy collusion that right now there's a letdown, uh, a feeling that Trump won. In terms of his campaign, I think that the people who are his biggest supporters are going to be really energized because they think that this was all a witch hunt. It was all a waste of time and taxpayers' money. And so I think it will benefit them. I don't think, I, I think that some of his enemies will be deflated now rather than charged up even more. But again, that remains to be seen over the next few months to see how Democrats react. Yeah, what does this mean for the Democrats? Do they have any leverage left in trying to impeach Donald Trump? Well, they have a lot of leverage. I, I, I think impeachment is a real mistake to talk about right now because we have to come up with evidence. I mean, you can't just say uh, we don't like him, so we should impeach him. I mean, that's what happened with uh, with Bill Clinton 20 years ago, and I don't think that Congress wants to go through that. I think mean, the American people is under 50 percent, between 40 and 50 percent, want impeachment to proceed. I think what will be much smarter is to continue these oversight investigations and to see if there are any charges that could come out of lying to Congress. Uh, I, I, I think it would be a real mistake just to move right on to, to impeachment. And I think Democrats on the campaign trail for president probably would do better talking about issues like health care, issues like uh, trade, rather than uh, talking about impeachment. I, mean, I, I, I just think that's a waste of time. You're just talking to your uh, most vocal supporters rather than the swing voters who will determine whether Donald Trump wins a second term or not. Mm-hmm. But we know this, this summary, this is a letter from the Justice Department from the Attorney General William Barr and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. It's not from the special counsel Robert Mueller. So right. how justifiable is it for, for Democrats to ask for access to the full report? I, I, think, it, I think it is justifiable to uh, ask for access to the full report with a couple of exceptions. I mean, grand jury uh, proceedings are protected in America, meaning that some of the things that go on behind closed doors of a grand jury are not public information. So I think that the attorney general or the judge who's in charge of the grand jury probably needs to go through and see what information um, might be withheld because of the constitutional requirements. The second is evidence that's involved in criminal trials. We still have major criminal trials involving some Trump campaign officials uh, and then potentially of uh, Russians, if any of them are ever put, put on trial, if ever, the, if ever they're brought to the United States for trial. So there's some evidence that will be withheld because of that. So you can't say we want the entire report every word, but you can have most of the report released publicly, enough so that the public in the United States will be able to reach their own conclusions, uh, not filtered through the news media or filtered through Donald Trump's tweets. So, so is there any chance that the full report will be made public, or is there any suggestion that we're going to see perhaps any more about it? I, I think so. I mean, we have definitely not heard the last of this, and I think that we will see a you know, largely complete report uh, with the with with the, with the deletions that I mentioned, uh, because that's that's just I, mean, I think that's that's only natural. It's different in this case than the Star report, which was in the in the Clinton impeachment, because there was nothing involved in criminal proceedings there, so everything could be released. This is a little bit different, but most of it could be released 
Donald Trump already has called for uh, the release of the report. So it'll be interesting to see what his supporters say. So what do you expect is going to happen next, you know, following the, the release of his summary of this report? Well, I'm afraid, having looked at what's happened in the uh, U.S. media, that a lot of my former colleagues in the Washington Press Corps are just hyperventilating right now and deciding who wins, who loses, and saying uh, you know, that Donald Trump is still a bad person or Donald Trump is still a good person. I think it would be better if we uh, just stick to the facts of this, try to get as much information as possible, and then move on to some of the important issues. I think Washington has just been consumed by, by this. And while it's been an important issue and the investigation was very important to, have, to, to go through with it and to have it as independent as it was with a respected prosecutor, I think we can't obsess over it going forward because the investigation is over here. It'll move to other, it'll move to other areas. So we have to drop the Mueller, uh, the Mueller stories and let's move on to where there are actually active investigations. Thank you, Rick Donham, co-director of the Global Business Journalism Program with Tsinghua University. Coming up, hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands marched in London this weekend to demand new Brexit referendum, China to reduce government intervention in industrial sector, and ISIS has lost its final stronghold in Syria. The Syrian Democratic Forces has announced. To hear this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now is Global Survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining us is Wang Xiao. First up in Asia-Pacific. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has ordered a top-level inquiry into the Christchurch mosque attacks that left 50 people dead. A pro-military political party in Thailand has taken a lead in the country's first election since the army took power five years ago. In Africa, police in Morocco's capital, Rabat, have used water cannons to disperse thousands of young teachers protesting for better work conditions. In central Mali, more than 130 people were killed by the traditional Dungzo hunters on a Fulani village last weekend. In the Middle East, Iraq's parliament has sacked the governor of the northern province of Nineveh, where more than 100 people died when the ferry capsized three days ago, triggering grief and anger among residents. Iran has said it would expand its ties with Lebanon in spite of the call by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for Beirut to choose sides. In Europe, a cruise ship that got into trouble off the Norwegian coast has arrived safely at the port of Mold after the rescue of hundreds of people. In Paris, thousands of anti-government yellow vest demonstrators have rallied in the French capital as authorities sought to enforce a ban on protests in certain areas. In Latin America, two Russian military planes have landed in Venezuela's main airport, reportedly carrying dozens of troops and large amount of equipment. Prince Charles and his wife Camilla are visiting Cuba in an official capacity, becoming the first British royals to visit there. And finally in North America, 
Rudy Giuliani, U.S. President Donald Trump's lawyer, has called on Democrats to admit their mistakes so the country can heal. After Attorney General declared the president didn't conspire or coordinated with Russia in 2016 presidential election. And U.S. migration authorities say a caravan of some 1,200 migrants from Central America and Cuba began moving towards the U.S. border from southern Mexico this weekend. That's one show with the global headlines survey for today. Hundreds of thousands of people have poured onto the streets of central London, asking to have a final say on Britain's departure from the European Union. People of all ages from across the political spectrum joined campaigners on Saturday for a people's vote to protest against the government's handling of Brexit. Many of them hoping for a chance to reverse the result of the 2016 referendum, which saw 52% of voters opting to leave the bloc. Organizers of the Put It to the People campaign say more than a million people joined the march before rallying in front of the parliament. Last Thursday, European leaders agreed to delay the UK's departure from the EU. Prime Minister Theresa May is coming under pressure to quit after saying she might not put her Brexit deal to a third vote by MPs. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Dr. by Mr. Dennis Campbell, founder and editor of UK Progressive Magazine. So,、uh, Mr. Campbell, could you tell us more about the protests on Saturday? Who participated, and what were they demanding for? Mr. Campbell,、uh, seems there's some problem with our phone line. Let's take a short break here. Coming back, we'll continue our discussion. Join the most popular Chinese language learning page on Facebook by searching for CRI Learn Chinese. It's a quick yet fun way to achieve your language goals. Start your free lessons now with unlimited videos, photos, and text tutorials on expressions and Chinese culture. CRI Learn Chinese Facebook page. A world opens with 你好 So, Mr. Campbell, good evening. Could you tell us more about the protests on Saturday? Like, who participated in that, and what were they demanding for? Well, Saturday, an estimated one million people marched across London from Hyde Park to Parliament Square. And the BBC helicopter time lapse was very impressive. It showed people everywhere. Two, there's an online position that, as of this moment, has nearly five and a half million signatures. That's the largest response in history. Now, the organisers were put it to the people. They use a website called peoples-vote.uk, and several satellite marches were held in the UK, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and other locations. The marchers are demanding the UK withdraw Article 50. The mechanism that began the Brexit withdrawal process two and a half years ago, and that they hold a second referendum. So,、um, why are people now asking for a second referendum when two years ago they have voted to leave the EU by themselves? Well, the referendum in 2016 was, as all UK referenda are, non-binding. The government chose, though, to make it binding despite its narrow margin of victory, 51.9 to 48.1, because of the illegal fundraising, deceptions, and lies of the Leave campaigners. Now, the battle bus said 350 million would come back for the NHS, a lie they backtracked on while the vote was being counted on election night.、Uh, the posters of immigrants swarming at the borders was actually a photo taken in Macedonia. 
And uh, there were multiple reports of Russian hacking social media messages and involvement of WikiLeaks and Cambridge Analytica. Yet Prime Minister May came up with the ridiculous phrase, Brexit means Brexit. Because six weeks before the referendum, UKIP, the far-right fanatics led by Nigel Farage, won seven seats in the 60-seat Welsh Assembly. So the decision was based on the electoral calculus that going against a rising far-right tide would hurt the Tory government far more than appeasing them. And by the time the PM called for a snap general election in 2017, UKIP members showed that they're truly volatile colours in Wales and across the EU, and the government saw their support was a mile wide and an inch deep, but May was trapped, despite saying in 2016 Britain should remain in the EU. In the interim, she's gone through three Brexit ministers, seen the most vocal Brexit supporters resign from her cabinet, and now they sit and lob grenades from the outside in at her deal. So do you mean the, the result could be different if there's a second referendum? Like, will it be even more divisive um, than the first one, and thus lead to more uncertainties to Britain's future? Well, polls say that Remain would win 60-40, but the polls were wrong in 2016, predicting a horse race, so we already are a divided nation. That's not as bad as in the United States. But it's taken a toll with Islamophobia on the rise and people not willing to change on either side. We're at a crossroads in the UK right now. Speaker Burkow of the House of Commons will not let the Prime Minister bring the bill back for a third vote since it's failed twice. And that's what the EU demands happen. Her ministers are revolting against her leadership. And the cabal that brought this all on have all resigned from her government and basically said, you fix it. Parliament also voted there cannot be a no-deal Brexit, yet here we are heading straight towards uh, the 12th of April now, it used to be the 29th this Thursday, and it could be pushed back to the 22nd if and only if Parliament approves May and the EU's deal, which has already failed twice. So it's a bit of what we call a dog's dinner. It's all up in the air. But what would a second referendum mean to British politics, which means they are going to you know, denying the result of the first referendum? Well, the first thing first, we'd have to hold EU parliamentary elections. That would create an interesting dilemma for anyone choosing to stand if we're out of the EU a few a few months later. And we're not sure what actually would happen in terms of the, the reaction from those who voted to leave, although there are a large number of them that honestly admitted that they didn't know what they were voting for. So how do you look at the challenges to Theresa May's leadership? Well, she's not my favorite leader, but she did try to keep her party and the government together. That said, no prime minister has ever had so many large defeats in such a short time period in the House of Commons. She says she's going to resign, but she continues to hold on despite the mutiny by those pro-Brexit members of her cabinet. So no one knows how long she can continue to do with it. The problem is we're going to crash out of the EU with no deal, which was expressly forbidden by Parliament, or Parliament votes on April 11th to withdraw Article 50, have a second vote, and essentially start over. So it's a complete mess. Okay, thank you, Mr. Dennis Campbell, founder and editor of UK Progressive magazine. Chinese authorities have promised to reduce direct government intervention in the country's industrial sector. Ministry, Minister of Industry and Information Technology Miao Wei made the comment on Monday as he addressed the annual forum held in Beijing. Miao has also pledged to reduce taxes and improve the protection of intellectual property as the next move of the government, adding the general manufacturing sector will be fully liberalized. 
but it says China will not will continue to encourage higher value production. For more on this, my colleague Ding Heng was earlier joined by Anna Tungen, author and columnist, and Yi Min, chief advisor for China Business of Railway Company MTR Hong Kong. Okay, so Anna, let me start with you. Why does China want to reduce government intervention on the industrial sector at this moment? Well, you have to put it together with the other things he said, which is、uh, it's all about innovation and how you encourage that. If the government is taking a much heavier hand in the industrial、uh, side, it, it does two things: one, it,、uh, it it will be a red flag to the U.S. in terms of negotiations, but two, it'll interfere with the natural process,、uh, which allows, as he said, to take、uh, something from the lab to the market.、Mm, so, Mr. E, what is your take? But I take away from the、uh, the forum like this weekend.、Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like this: the、uh, in the last、uh, two decades, the China business is more robust than compared to the you know、uh, the early years. So、uh, you know, recently the Chinese government、uh, update the uh, foreign investment uh, uh, policy、uh, encourage more investment. Uh, so-called they update the、uh, negative list.、Uh, therefore, the、uh, I think for more investors and more manufacturers will be uh, more uh, you know have more opportunities and more、uh, chance to grow together with China market. I give you example. In my industry, like the rail industry,、mm. uh, in the past、uh, there is no more than forty-nine percent.、Uh, Outsiders, or I mean the external investors into China market, but today you can do the hundred percent. So what that means actually, you encourage more,、uh, you know, robust and、uh, investment and growth together with China market. That's what I take up. Hmm. Oh, by the way, talking about your particular sector, the railway industry, are there any real investors from from international community that is now operating in China? Yes, like us, we are the uh, uh, multinational or international investors. We invest in the London, in Stockholm, and in Beijing, Hangzhou, and Shenzhen. This is so-called a three P a PPP、uh, model. We're trying to introduce this international model into China market.、Uh, this means we,、uh, together with the Hong Kong experience,、uh, real plus property. This is a, a trying to help the Beijing market and the, the mainland market、uh, going to more robust way、uh, doing the public service. Mm, and of course, the Chinese railway markets need more vitality to be injected. Of course, that's for sure. But Ina, so does the comments of the industry minister mean that、uh, China wants to have less and less government intervention?、Uh, mean China is now becoming less serious about its high-tech、uh, manufacturing drive? No, not at all. I mean, quite、mm. frankly, uh, the uh, local governments are being encouraged to pursue innovation, to try to get small, medium-sized enterprises involved, and to you know take a very, very uh, proactive um, 
look at how to create this next generation of technology, which is necessary to move China beyond this uh, middle income trap that they're very concerned with at this moment. So uh, people shouldn't uh, take this as a as a pullback. Really, what it is is there. Uh, she is uh, trying to allow more market forces to come in. It comes at a time when, um, you know, quite frankly, in international investment is uh, very weary, uh, very leery of everything, and China represents a very good market long term. Mm. So, Mr. E, the industry minister he talked about the challenges for technology for technology manufacturers in his address, noting they need to survive a so-called uh, "quote-unquote" valley of death as they seek to turn laboratory samples into mass production. So, in your opinion, how should we understand this term "valley of death"? So I understand well. Uh, yes. Mr. E. I understand this way. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, the industry transformation in China from the low end, low value products into the more high value area. However, if you see the industry itself, the cost base is higher and higher. For instance, the materials and uh, human cost and also other things is very high. Uh, other side, I would say the environmental challenge. And also, uh, you know, the uh, the policy challenge is very high. So, if you do not, you know, uh, work out this so-called value of death, that means the more industry will be uh, really death in the near future. So, to tackle this issue, I think government is trying to, uh, at the same time, grow the industry, grow the value chain from the lower value to a higher value. At the same time, trying to help the industrial south, especially for the uh, small and medium-sized uh, enterprise, to survive from this uh, big move. Mm -hmm. You know, this uh, globalization actually gives China more chance, more opportunities, and at the same time, so more challenges. Mm, indeed. So, Ina, what is your understanding? Well, I mean, quite frankly, the. Valley of Death. I mean, it's a literary illusion. It's Death Valley. There's a place where the charge of the Light Brigade, <laughs> and there is also a place in Poland. So when you start looking at it, they're all negative entities. And what I think he's talking about is this this sense that. It is very difficult to move from a micro entity that has an idea uh, into something that is uh, fully uh, producing it, and he's encouraging people to, you know, buck the chances to get involved, uh, find find ways to be innovative, and he's he's really pointing towards the market. This has been a little bit different in the past. People, especially. Um, uh, people in China have a tendency to kind of follow the government, see where they're going, anticipate, and get out in front of it. Uh, in this particular case, they're saying, look, it's time for innovation. Uh, small, medium-sized enterprises are really the, the lifeblood, you know, 90% of new hires. You know, everything that China is, is hoping for is going to depend on that. So he's, he's, it's a very negative connotation in a way, but he's trying to use it in a way to, to encourage people to take the risks. Mm. And uh, so, Mr. E, Ina already talked about the importance of the small and medium-sized companies, especially from the from the private sector, I guess. So, the industry minister Melway also said that um, small and medium-sized companies will play a bigger role in the innovation of China's industrial sector. In reality, how do you think China can make this happen? Well, uh, I think we need more help from government policy and also 
I'll give you an example like small, medium-sized companies. Uh, probably it's uh, not easy to get a loan from the bank or not easy from the, uh, the policy side give more uh, uh, green light on the uh, some you know uh, new uh, policy, new industry uh, sectors. So therefore, for them to survive is very difficult. I, I think the Mio, uh, Mr. Mills' uh, uh, comment is very encouraging that you know in the near future, because smaller and medium-sized companies easy to turn, especially for today, the innovation and our industry trend is move, moving too fast. So like big companies, they, they have no idea how to tackle these uh, opportunities. Therefore, I believe if you want smaller, medium-sized companies more play the big role, you need more improve the business environment and give them more equal policy. Mm, so, Ina, I think uh, Mr. 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 E. Ming, he talked about the government needs to provide more help, more policies. But on the other hand, we're, we we heard uh, Minister Melway talk about there will be less and less government intervention. So how do you think we can, say, distinguish between intervention and uh, policy aimed at providing some help? Well, I think my colleague is, is referring to and is well aware of the, the problem that China has in terms of risk lending. Uh, Chinese banks are wonderful about assets. If you have a house, a car, whatever, they'll value it and they'll give you a percentage of that for your plan. But you walk in there with a great business plan. It doesn't matter how wonderful it is. The banks will just look at you and say, well, do you have a car? Do you have a house? Um, so what the government is trying to do is get uh, the market to respond to the needs. Remember, banks weren't invented just to lend on assets and for assets. They were there to provide capital at a basic level for uh, entrepreneurs, small businessmen, uh, farmers, etc. So they're trying to move into this. The problem is that they don't have a lot of experience, um, and they don't have enough people with that experience to do that. So you're seeing them create new things like this new uh, Shanghai um, uh, technology force. And they also, they're, you know, encouraging uh, these online banks who use non-traditional methods to determine whether or not you're a good business bet. But I think most of those, even those uh, new companies uh, like WeBank and, and, you know, Alibaba and all these uh, groups and financial, they don't have the ability to do a risk lending. They can do an, uh, something where, you know, where a company says, look, I need some money in order to buy materials and pay for uh, – uh, labor expenses because I have a contract that that they can do very easily. So the question is really how do you get a the financial structure to respond to the needs of the market, which are uh, becoming more and more complex. The more that you want innovation, innovation means it's new, it's not old, and you have to figure out a way of financing it. That's Einar Changin, author and columnist, and Yi Min, chief advisor for China Business's railway company MTR Hong Kong, speaking with my colleague Ding Hun. The Syrian Democratic Forces has claimed a victory in defeating the Islamic State as it took over Bakus, the jihadist group's last stronghold. The announcement came 12 hours after a similar declaration by U.S. President Donald Trump, who told reporters traveling abroad Air Force One that ISIS has been 100% defeated following a briefing from Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan. 
White House spokesperson Sarah Sanders added that the territorial caliphate has been eliminated in Syria. So is this the end of the self-declared caliphate that once spanned a third of Iraq and Syria? And why many people are feared that they would return? To answer these questions and more, we are now joined by Xu Qingdo, our chief political analyst. So, Qingdo, we first heard the news from President Trump, who claimed a 100% victory over the Islamic State. And then about 12 hours later, the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces raised their, raised their flag over the northeastern town of Akuz and declared the caliphate finally dead. So why was the timing of the two announcements not in sync? Well, um, remember, you know, President Trump uh, is always, um, uh, you know, he has a habit of breaking news uh, on Twitter, sometimes, uh, you know, ahead of his intelligence uh, people. Um, but it's, you know, uh, I would say differences of 12 hours uh, is really about uh, how you're defining the end of the war, right? Uh, of course, this is very symbolic, the final time now being captured by the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, basically their Kurdish, uh, Kurdistan fighters, Kurdish fighters over there. So this is a, a, a symbolic, but it's important. That's the end of the ISIS as a caliphate or as what do they call like the uh, Islamic State over there. But of course, all those fighters uh, were dispersed. Uh, uh, some of them, the foreign fighters, uh, probably were trying to get back to where they're from, or some others would, you know, find one way or another to disappear in order not to be captured individually over there. Uh, but then, you know, as we said, you know, the defeat of ISIS does not mean the end of terrorism. Remember, there's a big difference. Uh, this is mostly symbolic, the end of uh, ISIS as a state, uh, as what they claimed. But uh, uh, the fight against the terrorism, I would say, will uh, be still going on. Well, Professor Saeed Mohammed Marandi, Dean of the Faculty of World Studies at the University of Tehran, is also joining us on the line. So, Professor, what are the immediate challenges the governing body faces right now? Uh, there has been reports saying that Iraq is going to indict thousands of ISIS fighters, yet the country could not accommodate them in the prison system. So how can they cope with the situation? Well, first I'd like to point out that... Uh the bulk of the fighting with ISIS ended uh, a while ago, and uh, the real uh, struggle was between the Syrian army and its allied forces, meaning Iran, Hezbollah, and uh, the Russians and the Iraqis. They did the bulk of the fighting. And in fact, those small, that small pocket of ISIS that the Americans finally dealt with recently the Americans were allowed them to stay there uh, since last year. And when the Iranians and the Syrians wanted to finish ISIS, the Americans warned them not to cross the river. So these ISIS forces for the last year, over a year, well over a year, have sort of been protected by the Americans. But now since Trump wants to pull out of the country uh, and his uh, antagonists or his opponents in the United States were saying that ISIS is still a threat, he basically has been forced to uh, destroy this small pocket uh, where their forces remain. So this is not really uh, a big thing. It is significant in its own way, but uh, this is a, compared to the broader war on terrorism, this is quite small. And as your uh, guest rightly pointed out, this is not the end of terrorism. The United States, as we speak, is still protecting al-Qaeda 
in Idlib, in the Idlib province uh, in northern Syria. Uh, Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda, the same people who we all know carried out 9-11, they are in control over uh, that almost the whole of that area in the north of Syria, the whole province. And uh, the Americans and the Europeans and, and some regional countries uh, continue to support them out of their hostility towards Syria. But the Iraqi government obviously is going to have a difficult time because the Europeans, being very hypocritical, they allowed many of these extremists to go to Iraq and Syria. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Professor Saeed Mohammed Morandi, Dean of the Faculty of World Studies at the University of Tehran, and also thank you, Chindo, for joining us this evening. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.